Thank you for watching. We Live from beautiful downtown Dixon in the historic Reagan's Arcade. Welcome to the Jeff Eby Show, where the talk is all about Dixon County. We are guest focused and listener supported. Like us on Facebook and subscribe on YouTube at the Jeff Eby Show. Now, here is your host, Jeff Eby. We thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're really excited about uh, you being with us. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook, please like and share this. And if you're watching on YouTube, just give me the thumbs up and subscribe to the channel there. We really appreciate it. You know, the more information we get out to everybody, the more people will be able to watch and find out really what's going in, on in Dixon County because uh, this show is all about Dixon County. And today, we're happy to... to uh, bring to the show Zach Kinslow, who's actually the, uh, I guess, curator, what do they call it? I'm the director. Director, director yeah. of the um, Clement Muse Railroad Museum there. Yep. So uh, we're just really happy that you were able to come over today. Yeah, I know you've glad been busy. you had me. you got a lot of stuff going on over there and everything, but we really appreciate you being here. So we just kind of want to get started a little bit, just kind of talk about how you got here, you know, kind of what your history is uh, okay. as far as uh, getting to where you are today. Yeah, so it was uh, a combination of things that kind of led me to, to where I am. I, um, you know, I've got three degrees. I got an associate's I got at Columbia State, a bachelor's I got at Martin Methodist back when it was still Martin Methodist. Yeah, see, Methodist. I didn't know that, but yeah, you, you kind of informed me about that they took, the UT took that over. UT Southern is what it's called now. So okay. they're, they're a branch of the University of Tennessee system, and I joke that, you know, I... I'm a UT alumni without having ever yeah. went to UT. <laughs> uh, and then I got my master's degree in U.S. history at Austin Peay State University. Um, now, during all that time I'm, I'm going to school, I'm working a couple different jobs. I worked in a restaurant at night. I um, you know, charter at one point. But I also worked at the President James K. Polk Home Museum in Columbia, Tennessee, uh, the only existing home other than the White House of the 11th President of the United States, uh, James Polk. Right. And um, I started out giving tours there by the time I left I was um, I was in charge of doing a lot of their educational stuff there. So I would do outreach programs and um, would go to different parts of the state. Hey, if you can't come to the Polk home, I can bring the Polk home to you was, was kind of my big goal. And um, one of the places I did a talk at was the Clement Railroad Hotel Museum around 2018. Um, good talk, had a lot of fun doing it. People, it was received very well. I left the Polk home in September 2019 and began working at Austin Peay State University as an adjunct professor of U.S. history. Uh, and then around this time last year, I got an email. The, uh, the director at the time was, was looking at leaving, and uh, they asked if I was interested in coming for an interview. And I did. So around November 2020, uh, I did an interview, and within an hour of leaving the interview, uh, got a phone call saying, we, we, you got the job. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I started, um, I <clears throat> had a little bit of time to transition into it. So uh, December 15th, uh, 2020, I started. So I'm cool. almost a year into the job. And uh, we've done a lot of great things, and I'm loving right. every minute of it so yeah, far. Yeah, we talked about this. You took this job early on, you know, during the pandemic. And so how did that, did that affect uh, kind of the way you handle things there at the hotel? A, a, a little bit. bit. Yeah. A little bit. So um, I came in at the end of 2020. Uh, so the, you know, the big hit was really March and April right. uh, of that year. So the museum did close down for a couple weeks uh, during the pandemic. And um, it was really hard to work in that field at that time. Right. I mean, so many museums around the world uh, are no longer around because they are 
tourist destinations. They, they, they thrive off of fundraising and people coming to them. And if no one's coming to them because they're either on lockdown, not comfortable going places, doing things, you lose business and eventually right. you go away. For instance, uh, Charles Dickinson, his house in London uh, had to close and, wow. and, and auction off the contents of the home. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, it's no longer a museum anymore wow. uh, because they were hit that hard from COVID. So I felt very uh, fortunate and very lucky and fairly blessed that the, the Clement Museum thrived through it and was enough that they could hire a new director uh, in it. Um, like I said, I came at the end of 2020, so a lot of the big stuff affecting museums based on the pandemic had already kind of been able to been solved because it was a day-by-day yeah. Trying to figure out what's going on. So by the time I came into it, they already had some standards and things set. Um, so it wasn't as hard a transition as you might imagine it being coming in. I think if I started in March, it, who knows if I'd yeah, even be, be able to sit yeah. here and do a talk on it. Right. Um, but we we did we do we were able to survive it and, and come out pretty well. Uh, so you were it. a you were adjunct professor at um, Austin PC University, yeah. Now, now, what kind of stuff did you actually teach? Uh, U.S. 1. So uh, the best way to describe it is U.S. 2 is the Civil War to about Vietnam. Uh, and U.S. 1 is the the beginning of time to the Civil <laughs> War. <laughs> so that's a lot of material, I would think. It is. You kind of start talking about... Um, because the United States is kind of a, you know, that melting pot, that mixture of all these different cultures and ideas and things. Right. So you have to talk about three... Three continents before you even get here. Right. Uh, you've got to talk about the history of Europe, what's going on there, the history of West Africa, what's going on there, and then the history of, of Native Americans and in different areas uh, of the United States. And then you bring them all together here right. and then start talking more of colonialism and, and the revolution and up through to, to about the Civil War. So what is, do you have a specialty that you kind of like I, in I history? I do. So my, my, I have, I have a deg- my master's degree. Uh, I specialized in 19th century American political history, uh, and um, I minored in African American history. Okay. Uh, so, so those those two areas were, were my expertise, which right. is weird because now I do 20th century yeah, uh, history at, right. at the Clement so Museum. So, politically speaking, mm-hmm. then and now, how okay. much different is it? Um, very different issues, but not much really. Um, history kind of repeats itself quite a bit. Right? Um, not so much repeats itself, but rhymes. Okay. Um, I mean, we've, you know, we, people today argue conservative and liberal, Republican, Democrat, uh, however you want to label it. People today argue over what does the Constitution mean? What can you can and what can you and cannot do? That's nothing new. The people that wrote the Constitution argued over what it meant and what you right. could and could not do. I mean, the reason political parties came to an existence in the first place was because Thomas Jefferson said, the Constitution says this, and Alexander Hamilton said, no, it says this. Right. <laughs> and they were there when the thing was written. So if they couldn't even agree on it, how are we supposed to? Right, right. So, so I mean, it's, it's the same argument, just in different clothes. And so that's how you come up with the amendments to the Constitution is because there's, you need to clarify what the Constitution says? Um, well, expand what the Constitution gives authority to. Um, not so much clarify what the constitution says, um, because there's not an amendment we have that explains an article, right? None of them do that. Um, but so they create the constitution and then the amendments were a process that came just after, uh, the constitution was created in the 17, like 1786. And then like 1789 is when we start seeing the first amendments. Uh, and the fear was from some of the more conservative members was, Hey, if you don't specifically say these things, then it kind of leaves some of that interpretation open. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Hamilton's side would argue well, we're not just we're not going to 
take advantage of that. And then Jefferson side said, well, we can't trust you not to. Right. <laughs> uh, so you start seeing some of the amendments come up um, because the Constitution itself creates the government. Article 1 creates Congress and explains what Congress can and cannot do. And then Article 2 creates the presidency and explains what the president can and cannot do. And then Article 3 creates uh, the judiciary and explains what they can and cannot do. Uh, so that's the Constitution is, is kind of the, the basis of our government. Right. Uh, and it's a very short read. You can read the entire Constitution beginning to end in a roughly thirty-minute period. Right, um, and I encourage people to do that. Oh right no! Right. When I taught, when I taught at Austin P, we, we'd have to get to the Constitution, and I'd ask him. I said, "No shame here." I said, "But I'm going to ask you this." I said, "Raise your hand if you've read it from beginning to end." And you know, you'd get a couple students. It was mostly if we had any immigrants in the class, they've read it. Oh really? Uh, well, in order to immigrate here, you have That's to take true. a test that right. natural right. citizens don't, which means you have to understand the Constitution. Um, and I'd say, okay, so those of you who have not raised your hand. Um, until you read the Constitution. I said, we're going to read it in class, so we're going to give it to you. You don't get to tell me if your rights are violated or not. You don't get to tell me if um, the government's overstepping their authority. You don't get to say any of that because you don't know. Right. If you haven't read the Constitution, you don't know. You might know what people have told you is in it. Right. But if you don't read it, you don't know, and that includes all the amendments too. Um, and a lot of it is influence. We... we, we took a lot of pieces from uh, what the French were doing, took a lot of pieces from what the Romans had done, took a lot of pieces from the Greeks, and and um, the basic idea, the Magna Carta, and what the British history had, had, had done. Right. Um, so we, we pulled together all these pieces to create something new. Uh, but yeah, the Constitution's a, something everyone should read in this country. Um, not enough people do. Yeah, do you think at your teaching position, yeah. do students even understand anything about it or they're just, they have ideas from what either their parents, they hear on the news or what teachers have told them. Uh, for instance, I would always use a, um, as an example, when I taught, um, freedom of speech is a good one. I'd, I'd use the first and second amendment cause we're more familiar with those right. as opposed to right. the eighth amendment. Right. <laughs> if I ask people to say that, what is the eighth amendment? Right. Um, I would use two examples when I taught it to try to explain to them, the purposes behind and what these things mean. First Amendment, I said, is it um, you're at a baseball game and the person in front of you is drunk and they're yelling at the pitcher? Is it, and, and you know, you tell them to, to sit down and be quiet. Is that a violation of the First Amendment for you to tell them they can't express themselves freely? No, um, because you're not the government. The First Amendment applies to the government only. The okay. government cannot violate your freedom of speech. The government cannot do that. Other than that, it's it's constitutional. Free for all, yeah. Um, and, and a better example that I would use that really kind of understood people was um, in some stores like Target. There's a sign that you can't carry your firearm into their store. Is that technically a violation of the Second Amendment? According to the Constitution, it's not because that all applies to the government. The government cannot infringe upon your right to bear arms. A a a, a private business is not the government, and therefore, if they don't want that in their store, they kind of right. no, no shoes, no shirt, no service kind of kind of thing there. Now, do I agree with that policy? That might be a whole different, that's a whole different right. Right. issue, but is it unconstitutional? What do you think from that's a, different there. I mean, speaking of that, how can, how, how would, uh, like, a target enforce that? Because the only way to enforce it would then bring the government in to help them enforce it, right? I mean, that. Um, so the judiciary is part of the government, but it's slightly different because they're majority non-political, um, you would have to, yeah, you would have to bring the government in as the arbitrator of that. But that, that's kind of all things. 
Uh, when we talk about unconstitutional things, it's the government deciding if itself is doing right. something wrong, <laughs> uh, which they're either in the past have done or, or not done. Um, but, I mean, it, it's a private business. I mean, if you own, if you own, it's like your home. If you don't want something in your home, you have every right to tell the person coming into your home, I don't want that here. Right. Um, so that that's kind of the thing there. I mean, if it's a problem, you call the police to enforce it, which it's, are a branch of the government. Right. As far as history, has there yeah. ever, I, I know here recently, mm-hmm. you know, the Second Amendment and the First Amendment actually has, has been brought up as yeah. being violated or whatever. Mm-hmm. Looking back in history, has this a, is this a repeat oh, yeah. of history? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The second president of the United States, John Adams. The founding fathers themselves created the most, as far as the First Amendment goes, the most blatant um, trashing of the First Amendment. Really? Yeah. yeah uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, John Adams, when he was president, he's the second pre- He was George Washington's vice president. He was, one of the fa- he was one of the guys that wrote the Constitution. Right. One of the guys that wrote the Declaration of Independence. He becomes president, and he doesn't like the criticism the president's getting. So Congress passes a law saying you cannot criticize the president, and if you do, you can go to prison. Now, is that a violation of the Constitution? You would think. It absolutely is. It was struck down by the Supreme Court and then overturned by the next President Jefferson. So, I I mean, like I said, we see even more blatant violations if we we actually look back on our history by the people that wrote it themselves. Right. So, I I would say, I would think through history that happens a lot, though. Yeah. They pass a law and then the the Supreme Court says, no, this is not constitutional. We're going to overturn this law or whatever. And I'm sure that happens over and over, not only today, but in the in our past history, it's happened quite a bit. Uh, yeah, it's 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 happened quite a lot. Um, now sometimes they'll all uphold things and say, no, this is constitutional. Um, a recent example might be we talked about Obamacare a little bit earlier. Right. Constitution under Roberts has said it's not a violation of the Constitution, and I haven't read the full ruling, so I can't explain why they say that. But right. um, they say it's not a violation, and that's their opinion of the court. Um, Looking. But, you know, uh, sometimes Supreme Court overturns Supreme Court decisions, too. Well, that's what the court does. Right. Uh, the court, it, the, the job of the Supreme Court is to be the, the end-all arbitrator when we, when we talk about um, what it is. Their appeals court. You have to go through every process to get to them. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregates, overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, right. which segregated. Segregation really didn't exist in the United States until 1896. People would say, oh, it, you know, it was always here. It wasn't even 100 years old by the time it ended. Um, but that was just overturning another court case. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's what the Supreme Court does is they, they look at the laws and decide, is this a violation of the Constitution? But they also will look back at um, past interpretations of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we view some interpretations of the Constitution, it, it, it does change. And that's, you know, we hear the term living document sometimes, depending right. on who you're talking to. Right. Um, and that can mean different things to different people. Um, like I said, it could be considered that way because we have an amendment process, but also we're not changing the Constitution itself, so it's, it's also not. So, um, but our interpretation of how we view those things can over time. At one point, they looked at it and said, yeah, this fully is segregation can happen because it's constitutional based based on the way we read it. Right. And then today we would never say, hey, right. segregation's unconstitutional based on the way we read it. So it's 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 a lot of interpretation when we read these things. But right. everyone's got their own opinion on something. Sure. And sometimes like I said, the Supreme Court overturns a 
old Supreme Court ruling. Yeah, that's a lot of what they do. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of what they do. Uh, uh, most of it is looking at these laws and cases that come to them and making the decision. Um, and a lot of them don't really affect the, the constitutionality of certain things. Like right. I said, it, that is, if the Supreme Court takes it up, they ch- get to choose what they see or not. If right. they don't pick up something, it goes back to the last decision made. Right. Um, and then sometimes they pick up the case, they look at it and go, okay, we agree with the lower court, what that, what that other court system had made. Right, and then it's um, pretty much a done deal. And then it's a done deal there, yeah, until it gets Spun back around. brought up again. Right. Yeah, uh, Roe v. Wade's a good example of that, that right. it made through the court, and now it's kind of a very similar issue challenging that is coming up now. So they could overturn it, they may keep it. It depends on uh, the decisions of the Right. Okay, we're going to go to a quick break, and we're going to be right back with Zach. Uh, with Zach, and we're going to talk about when we get back, maybe the James K. Pope. I want to hear okay. some, some stuff about that. So, stay with us. We'll be right back. doesn't have to be one of them. Make a choice you won't regret. The foremost choice. Are you looking for your dream home? Well, Lee Realty Group guarantees you the perfect home. With our expert agents that have over 100 years of combined experience, you are assured 100% customer satisfaction. If you are buying or selling, Lee Realty Group is your local veteran-owned real estate company. Contact us now at 615-446-2006 or online at leerealtygrouponline.com. Like us on Facebook at Lee Realty Group. carrier doesn't have to be one of them. Make the choice you won't regret. The foremost choice. All right, welcome back. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Eady, and we're here with uh, Zach Kinslow, who is the, uh, uh, operates the Clement uh, uh, Museum, Railroad mm-hmm. Museum. And uh, so before we left, we were talking a little bit, uh, some overall kind of history, and, but you were mentioning that you ran the James K. Polk uh, Museum there. I, ra- I did some of the educational stuff. They, okay. they had their own director and a curator. Gotcha. Well, go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about, I think people might be interested in that, um, 
So where exactly is that home? It's in Columbia, Tennessee. Okay. It's in, yeah. Um, so what's a little bit of history of uh, uh, James Polk? So, so James Polk was the 11th president of the United States. Um, he was born actually November 2nd. So this coming Tuesday is his uh, 226th birthday. Wow. Um, he was born in uh, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, a little town called Pineville. Uh, if you're familiar with Charlotte, North Carolina, yeah. it's about nine miles from it. Okay. So, so right there. Um, in 1806, his family uproots in North Carolina and moves west to Tennessee. Uh, more land available, more work opportunities here. Right. So they move west. Um, they live on a small little piece of land. I say small, but compared to what it would be, 350 acres. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, Back in, then, that was probably small. Uh, well, depends on who you are. Right. Uh, in um, around Spring Hill, Tennessee, the Neapolis area between Spring Hill and Columbia. Uh, James Polk lives there for a short time. Uh, he ends up moving back to North Carolina. Uh, at age 17, he attends college, goes to UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, graduates in 1818 and then moves back to Tennessee. And when he comes back to Tennessee, they don't live on a little homestead anymore. They've moved to a townhouse in the city his dad built in 1816, the Polk home. Okay. Uh, so James Polk uh, never owned the Polk home. Oh, wow. It was his parents' house. Yeah. Uh, so he lives there from 1818 until 1824. Um, when he marries his wife, Sarah, in 1824, they move into a cottage, which was just down the street where the Oaks and Nichols Funeral Homes parking lot oh, uh, wow. is today. It was yeah. a little cottage, wooden building. Um, I believe it burned down in the 1880s, so it's no longer around. Um, He was living in that cottage when he was elected governor of the state of Tennessee, so he moved to an apartment in Nashville because at the time, up until 1946, Tennessee didn't have a governor's residence. Uh, The governor had to find their own home, which usually meant an apartment downtown. Um, So they moved there, moved back to the cottage. In 1844, James Polk was elected president of the United States, and he left the cottage in Columbia and moved to the White House. Um, now, his father dies in 1826, so he got to see James Polk become a member of the House of Representatives, but never got to see him become president. His mother, Jane, is still alive at this point. Um, got to see her son become president, got to live through his whole administration. She's living in the Polk home. Uh, James Polk leaves the White House in 1849. He does not come back to Columbia. He kind of feels, I'm president of the United States. I want to live in a bigger house in a bigger city. So he buys a a large mansion. uh, It was originally called Grundy Place, or Felix Grundy, the Attorney General of the United States. He lived there. Um, Grundy dies. They buy the estate. Now, Uh, where is that? That is no longer around. I know, but where where was Uh, that? It's where the Best Western is, downtown. In in Columbia? In Nashville. Oh, in Nashville. Okay. Downtown Nashville. You know where the Capitol Inn? Yes. That was it. Okay. That was the site. Um, James Polk moves there in 1849. Within a month of getting to the house, he dies. Now, there was a cholera epidemic, wow. um, which which kind of interesting. If you read Polk's diary, because he kept a diary. He's one of the most documented presidents in American history because he kept everything. Um, he comes home to Nashville in a pandemic. Wow. Uh, and he talks about maybe keeping away from people, social distancing. He doesn't wear a mask or anything, but he does talk about maybe quarantining himself at his home. He's afraid of getting cholera, and he doesn't want to leave his house. Right. Uh, ultimately, he would get cholera. It was a waterborne disease, right. and they kind of didn't know that at the time, so he was drinking bad water. And within uh, 90 days of leaving the White House, he dies. He has the wow. shortest retirement of any president. He was, 40, uh, he was 53 years old. Um, he was buried at Polk Place. Um, his wife becomes America's longest-widowed first lady. She outlives James by 42 years. Wow. Uh, James's mother dies in 1852. 
so she outlived the president. Uh, she dies in 1852 when James Polk's brother William takes over the house, but he dies in the Civil War uh, fighting for the Union, and then William's son, James K. Polk II, takes it and doesn't want it, and he sells it uh, out of family hands. Um, eventually, Polk Place was tore down uh, in the 1890s. Sarah Polk dies in 1891, um, around 1900, uh, the home is tore down, and the Polks were moved from their home there to the Capitol building where their, their remains are now. Um, the Polk home stood. Uh, it was private residence. The YMCA owned it. The Boy Scouts of America owned it. They almost put a bowling alley on the back oh, of the building at one point, and they stopped that from happening. Uh, in 1924, uh, I believe, um, a woman named Sally Fall, who was Sarah Polk's adopted daughter, the Polks never had kids, she founds the James K. Polk Memorial Association with the sole purpose of preserving um, the legacy of James and Sarah Polk. Uh, she'd been raised by Sarah from the time she was a little girl. Now, she dies quickly after forming that. Her daughter, Sadie, uh, which, by the way, they're all named Sarah Polk, so it's Sa Sarah, Sally, and Sadie. Oh, wow. Uh, they called them that to tell them apart. Yeah. Uh, Sadie, in 1929, uh, convinces Governor Austin P. Uh, that if... You know, they buy the Polk home. If the state buys the Polk home, uh, everything the association owns that belonged to James and Sarah Polk would be put in the home and operated as a museum to James and Sarah. Um, and that happened. That's that's what wow. it is. And that creates the Polk home as a museum today. Since 1929, it's operated as a museum. And that's where I got my, my start in the museum wow. business. Now, have they, I'm sure they've done a lot of restoration to the house over yeah. the years. Yeah. Has it changed much at all? Uh, no, but what, no. So, um, Original floors, original walls, wow. the contents may not be from that exact home, but right. they come from James and Sarah Polk's entire life, from things that were in the home to mostly White House pieces to, to retirement at Polk Place in Nashville. Uh, but the house was restored in the 1970s and then again in the 1990s uh, to kind of put it back into the era of how they believe the house would have looked in the 1840s gotcha. when James Polk was, was president of the United States. So it doesn't look like it did when he lived there. Uh, the structure of the house is the house, okay. uh, but the interior is designed more to, to look as if um, it, it would have looked during during the Polk administration. Okay, all right. So he was James K. Polk was the governor, one term, and he was also a representative. He was a representative, and he's the only president of the United States to serve as Speaker of the House. Oh wow! He was a representative. He was a seven-term United States congressman. His last two terms. He was a nine-term United States congressman. He served seven um, just as a congressman. His last two terms, he was Speaker of the House of Representatives. So what, what area was he, uh, did he represent? So it was at the time considered the 5th Congressional District, which is not the 5th Congressional District today. Right. Uh, it was Murray, Rutherford, Bedford County okay. uh, were, his, were his, his counties he represented in Congress. Cool, cool. So he, was he governor before going to the to the? State house or to the after oh after, after. so Andrew so um, Andrew Jackson was the founder of the Democratic Party right um, James K Polk's nickname is Young Hickory he was the um, second coming of Jack he was the protege of Jackson okay so everything Polk did was aimed at like being Jackson and Jackson loved him like a son um, in eighteen thirty nine Andrew Jackson's not popular right um, eighteen thirty seven Jackson leaves the presidency and his economic policies prior to that destroyed the economy. Um, I mean, he, he created the, the executive order species regular, which says you can only buy federal land in gold. Well, how many people are carrying gold around right, anymore? Right. So you, you see the bottom fall out of that. Uh, he pays off the national debt. Only time in American history we had no national debt, which sounds like a great thing, but we couldn't borrow money at that point. We couldn't do anything. Imagine trying to buy a house with no credit. Yeah, That's 
what Jackson did. So we, it's what we have now with the national debt is not good, but too, too little is also not a great thing. So you kind of want to find that good middle where you have credit and you're paying off and kind of think your own line of credit that that's what we want. So the economy was awful uh, when Jackson left office and um, it really affected the party, the democratic party at the time. So it's Democrats and Whigs at this point and right. Republicans would come 1850s. Um, and so well, didn't he also uh, was instrumental in the, the uh, native American Move. Yeah, that was his. That was his. That was uh, his the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Uh, they said Jackson could not do it, uh, and in a direct violation of the Constitution, Andrew Jackson anyway. responded by saying, "John Marshall, as Chief Justice, has made his ruling. Let him enforce it." Wow. So, I mean, that's that. That is an impeachable offense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the president yeah. to just say, "I don't care what the Supreme Court said. I'm going to do what I want anyway." The law was just, was declared null and void. Because the native the, the native tribes the Cherokee had sued the federal government over it, right? And the federal government and the, and the Supreme Court said no, you they own the land, you can't. And we have treaties with them already. You can't do this. That law is invalid. And Jackson said, well, I kind of don't care, uh, and did it anyway. Wow. So is there? I guess obviously there's no repercussions if that happens, right? If, in other words, if a sitting president says no, I don't want to do that. Um. So today there might be more. Um, and that depends on what's happening. There, there, there are repercussions. Jackson just held a supermajority in Congress at the time, and and he was very popular at the time. So, although the Supreme Court ruled he couldn't do it, who who was going to stop him, and how were they yeah, going to stop know, him exactly. at the time? I mean, who would do that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's it's almost dictatorial when we think of it that way. That right. we have the processes to keep something like this from happening, right? Because then you got your three branches of government, right? Which is why one of Jackson's nickname was King Andrew. Oh, really? Because he acted more under the authority of maybe what a king would do as opposed to a president should do. Right. Um, in some, in fact, he was censured by Congress. He's the only president who have ever been censured by Congress. But that was for what he did to the Bank of the United States, not what he did to, to Native Americans in that ruling with the Supreme Court. Wow. Um, back to the main point, Polk was. Uh, Jackson was afraid that his party that he created was not, was not popular in his own home state, and that would be embarrassing to him. So he had James Polk leave Congress to run for, for governor, and Polk won uh, a one two-year term and then lost two consecutive elections. As governor? Uh, as governor. Wow. Uh, the Whig Party, James C. Jones from uh, Wilson County, Tennessee. Uh, youngest governor in the history of the state, 32. Uh, now, Frank Clement, who was born here in Dixon, right. is the second youngest governor of the state. He was also 32, but James Jones was... Um, about 28 days younger than he was wow. uh, at the time. Wow, wow. All right, so let's talk, let's kind of get to the museum, yeah. the, the one you work at. So tell us a little bit about Frank Clement, because that, okay. that is, was that his home place? He was born at the hotel. Okay. So, so the uh, building I work in, the Clement Railroad Hotel Museum, is the old Hotel Halbrick here in Dixon County. It was a railroad hotel uh, going back. It was built in 1913. cost them $3,500 to build oh, wow. it. Uh, in <laughs> Which is probably a lot. It, it, it was a lot, yeah. Uh, in 1914, um, <clears throat> it opened as a railroad hotel, which was to cater to the rail industry here in Dixon. We had 13 track lines in town. We could service over 28 trains a day. We are the halfway point between the Tennessee River and the state capitol. That's okay. 78 miles between. 39 is a halfway point. That's right here in Dixon. Wow. Uh, so we got a lot of the trains coming through. And uh, people would need a place to stop and stay and uh, wait for the next train that's going in their right direction, all these different things. So they would stay at the hotels in town, the Greystone, the Roadside Inn, um, the Hotel Halbrook, which was the closest to the depot and the cheapest in town. Right, right. It was originally 50 cents a night. It wow. was front page news of the Tennessean in 1926 when the rates were raised from 50 cents to $1.25. Um, 
But on June second, that's a pretty big rise. It's a big well, but you got to also remember the economy of the twenties was great. Yeah, that's true. And so people had more money, and they were just keeping with the right. rise of of it would drop a little bit back in the thirties when the depression hit. Right. Um, but the manager of the hotel at the time was a woman named Belle Goat, a widow from Kentucky who moved to Dixon with her five children to operate the hotel. Uh, one of her daughters was Maybell Goad. In 1919, Maybell Goad married Robert S. Clement, um, who was the son of a state senator, J.A. Clement. He was a lawyer in town. He was 18 when they got married, and she was 24. Oh, wow. uh, so it was a six-year age difference between them. Right. Uh, and she came from kind of a working-class lower family. She's a working woman of the 19-teens, and he's a... Um, you know, he's a lawyer. He comes from a prominent family. So it was a little bit of a thing in town when they did get married. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, they get married in 1919. They move into the hotel. They're living in the manager's suite. So she, the manager had three rooms downstairs. And on June 2nd, 1920, uh, Maybell, in room number five of the hotel, gives birth to her first child, a little boy they named Frank. Frank, um, 1922, the family moves out of Dixon. They actually move north to Vermont. Uh, and then they live in Kentucky. Robert was a traveling lawyer, so he represented in different parts of the country. Gotcha. Um, by 1933, the Clements have moved back to Dixon. They actually lease part of the hotel, so they're living back in the hotel for a while before they buy, um, I think it's 230 North Main Street. Uh, that law office today was where the Clement House was. Wow. In fact, that building was the Clement House. Yeah. Um, Frank starts attending high school here. At age 16, he started telling people, I'm going to be governor of Tennessee one day. I heard, I'm going to be governor, and people kind of laughed at him. But yeah. not a lot of people did. He was very driven, very smart. He graduates high school in Dixon in 1937, the same year he meets his, his wife, Lucille. She was from Erin, Tennessee, or in Houston County. Her, right. her father was a mayor. Uh, Nelson Christensen was mayor of Erin. Um, they ran off to Kentucky, got married, and came back down. Um <laughs> simultaneously, Frank Clement, this is how smart the guy was, he went to Cumberland University and Vanderbilt University at the same time. Wow. He simultaneously graduated with his bachelor's degree and his law degree. Wow. Uh, this is before he's 21 years old. At 21, he joins the FBI. He becomes the youngest agent in the Bureau. He's the youngest FBI agent in the country. He is so young, they dress him as a college kid, have him infiltrate the Chicago mob. Now, who was the top gangster in the United States living in Chicago in 1937. Right. Al Capone. Right. All right, so he's not going after Capone, but he's going to go after his number two, Roger Toohey. He's detailing Roger Toohey. In fact, they take him down. Uh, he was only in the FBI for about a year. Uh, 1943, World War II is happening. Frank Clement joins the military, and as an FBI agent, he had a choice. He could go in as an officer, and they decided, he decided he didn't want to do that. If he was going to go in, he was, if he was going to be an officer, he was going to work his way up from a private. He chose to not go in as an officer, join as a buck private, work his way up, which uh, J. Edgar Hoover really liked. Yeah. So we have a letter of accommodation at the museum from Hoover to, to Clement. Wow. Uh, Clement decides, you know, by 1952, he's waited long enough and he's old enough, he's 32, uh, to run for governor of the state of Tennessee. Um, and Is that the minimum age? Uh, I think it's... 30 in okay. the state of Tennessee. Um, I know 21 is the minimum age to be a member of the legislature. Uh, okay. legislature. Gotcha. Uh, I think it's 30 in the state of Tennessee. I might be wrong on that. Uh, some states like Vermont don't have age requirements. A kid could run for governor oh, up really? there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's 30 here, though. Uh, so he's 32 years old. Uh, he decides he's going to run for governor. Uh, he's a Democrat, so he's going to run against Gordon Browning in the primary that year. Gordon Browning is the sitting governor. Um, 
So it's not like a governor stepped down and he's going to run. He's going to challenge the sitting governor in his own primary race. And is the is is sitting governor a Republican? He's a Democrat. Oh, he is. Okay. Um, so at this time, a Republican couldn't get elected governor of the state of Tennessee. Right. Uh, they were very heavily Democratic state. Um, so kind of like with with Republicans today, if you win the Republican nomination for governor, you're pretty much you're pretty much going to be the next. It's, you're just going to kind of walk into the office. Right. Um, at this time, it was the Democrats. If you were a if you won the Democratic nomination, you were just going to go right into the right. to the governorship. But that seems a little bit harder to, right? It's one thing to beat a sitting governor in the general election. It's another thing to beat a sitting governor in his primary, beating wow. him in his own party. And Clement does it. He wow. beats Gordon Browning in the 52 primary. Um, and Frank Clement was a gifted speaker. In fact, uh, his opponents, Gordon Browning even, used to tell people, you better not go hear that SOB speak because you might <laughs> vote for him. Um, he was a gifted speaker. That's how he got elected so young. Right. Um, but he does that. He ends up beating the Republican in the uh, general election and goes right into the governor's, uh, governor's office at age 32. He was the second youngest governor. Remember, he's only, James Jones was only a couple days older than Clement when he took office in 1830, right. uh, 1841. Uh, was the governor mansion there then? Or yes, not? It was? Clement okay. was the second governor to live in the mansion. Okay. Uh, the state of Tennessee had purchased in 1946. We were the only state in the country that didn't have one, and you know they thought it'd be a lot easier yeah. on everybody if right. we just got one. So um, they purchased a mansion in uh, Nashville, right. Curtiswood Lane, um, which is the governor's mansion today. So it was purchased in 46, which Gordon Browning was governor then, uh, and then. Clement is the second governor to live into it, and he wow. moves him and his family into the governor's mansion. No fence at the time. You could just walk up to the door. Yeah. We're, uh, we're going to go to break real quick, uh, but stay with us. We're going to continue our discussion on that, and we got a lot more to come. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. You've dreamed about the perfect house, a place to call your own, and a place to not only stretch out, but to grow. Auto Owners protects your house because to you, it's home. That's simple human sense. Ask EB Insurance and Dixon if Auto Owners make sense for you. Happy to help, man. I was just over there talking to myself anyway. Are you looking for your dream home? Well, Lee Realty Group guarantees you the perfect home. With our expert agents that have over 100 years of combined experience, you are assured 100% customer satisfaction. If you are buying or selling, Lee Realty Group is your local veteran-owned real estate company. Contact us now at 615-446-2006 or online at leerealtygrouponline.com. Like us on Facebook at Lee Realty Group. insurance carrier doesn't have to be one of them. Make a choice you won't regret. The foremost choice.
right, we welcome you back to discussing some uh, various things, but our, we oh, yeah. were talking about the kind of Frank Clement and how he, uh, you know, his history in, in, in Tennessee and how it relates to the museum and everything. Oh, so, yeah. So just continue that a little bit. So he, he, from what we talked about last, I mean, he did a lot of stuff in a young oh, yeah. part of his age. Oh, yeah. You know? So he got elected governor at what, 32? 32. Yeah, yeah. 32 is one of the youngest we've ever had. Um, but yeah, he becomes governor in 1953. This is inauguration. Um, and interesting, I've got to explain this to explain something that's coming up here in the story. At the time, Tennessee governor's terms were only two years. Okay. No term limits whatsoever, but it was two-year terms. So every two years we had a governor's election. Uh, in 1953, the Tennessee state constitution is the oldest unamended constitution in the entire country. The last time an amendment was done to the Constitution of the state of Tennessee was 1870. Wow. In 1953, they add a couple new amendments for the first time. Uh, of course, we've done it a couple times since. Right. Um, the two big, they added a couple amendments, but the two big amendments they added were uh, the creation of metropolitan governments. So Nashville was growing so big. Davidson County government was like, well, we, right. we might as well just merge. And so that's where we get the Nashville-Davidson County metropolitan government there was because of this amendment. And then the second one they really did was uh, changing the terms of governors. So it went from a two-year term to a four-year term with um, kind of term limits. Tennessee is a bit different when we talk about term limits of governor. We don't limit how many times a person can serve as governor. There's no limit on that. There is a limit on how many times you can serve as governor consecutively. So you can have two terms as governor, and that's it. Take a break, and then you can have two more. Take a break, have two more. Is that the same way with the presidency? No, not not at all. It's not? Okay. No, presidents can only serve two terms. No matter if you break it up however you do it, two terms and two terms only. Okay. Unless you... um, Now, you technically, depending on if if you're a vice president that takes over for a president resigning or dying, um, you can serve two and a half if you are filling in for a president and you are one half their term plus one day, you okay. cannot serve. You can only serve one more term. Wow. Wow. Uh, anything under half a term if you're vice president. So the most any person can serve as president is two, two and a half. Two and a half yeah. But that's if you take over from gotcha. a president and you're under that halfway mark. Gotcha. Then you gotcha. can serve out the rest of that term and then two your own if you wish. Okay. Uh, but no, there is the 22nd Amendment is very clear. Only two terms for president of the United States. Gotcha. Um, so he he kind of uh, he kind of worked that through the I guess the legislature whatever. Oh, well, the legislature was already starting to work on it when okay. he when he came in. So he kind of came in just presided over it. Uh, so 1952, he's elected to his first term. He's up for re-election in 1954 because it begins with the next election, gotcha. which is 1954. Which is why we do our governor's terms on even years on you know not the presidential election year. Right. Uh, we do it on our midterms. Uh, so Frank Clement wins it. He beats Gordon Browning again uh, in 1954 uh, and then goes on to serve the first full four-year term as governor of the state of Tennessee. Uh, he would be ineligible because now he served two terms technically, right. even though it's only six years, right. um, from running for a third term. So uh, he d- does not run. He cannot run for a third term. Buford Ellington becomes governor. And then in 1962, Ellington steps down. And Clement runs for a third term. He wins, and then Clement doesn't run in 66, and Ellington runs. So this becomes a period known as leapfrog politicking. Yeah. <laughs> when one's not governor, the other is. Right. Um, they were both pretty popular governors. But Frank Clement's governor, he's one of the most important governors this state has ever had. I'll go on record and say that. Uh, he oversees the creation of the interstate system. And if you notice, Tennessee's interstates 
it seems as if it wasn't planned as well as some other states, but that's on purpose. Most states drew a straight line with the interstate. Tennessee didn't. We, we weaved it through uh, different areas. Clement came from a rail town. What happened to passenger trains and what happened to freight trains when the interstate was built? Yeah, they started to decline. They started to decline. People can drive themselves or put something on the back of a truck cheaper. Um, Clement knows he's from a rail town. That's going to kill Dixon. I-40 runs through Dixon Day because of Governor Clement. It was not supposed to. He starts bending and moving the route of the interstate as they're making it to touch dying rail towns to bring people back to them and save the economies of these small areas. So he thought ahead to do that. Uh, At the time, Clement oversaw education reform. Uh, When he was in school, he remembered uh, some of the um, impoverished kids having to deal with a lower standard of education in the same classroom as wealthier kids. You go to public school for free like you can now, but you had to pay for your books back then which means smart, poor kids could not afford the same study materials as mediocre, rich kids. And how does that benefit the state of Tennessee? If you have a less educated populace based on income, it doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't. And if you're trying to transition Tennessee from an agricultural state to an industrial state, because that's the way the country's moving, it's going to be impossible without an educated society. So he allocates money for the first time ever to give free textbooks to public schools, which is what we work under today. Um, by his third term as governor, 80% of the state budget was for education. Wow. That's how much of an emphasis he put on educating Tennesseans was 80% of it uh, was for education. Now, during that time, were other states already doing that or not, as far as providing materials yeah. to the schools? They yeah, were? more northern states. Southern states were a little bit slower to it, but, gotcha. but yeah. Uh, gotcha. But he just kind of worked off an existing model, but it works. It's proven. Where are the education centers at this time? Well, they're all northern states. we got to do something in the south here then. Right. And so he brought some of those policies down here. Wow. Because he didn't come up with it, but he... Right. noticed the problem and found a way to make it work. And it did. Tennessee skyrocketed by the end of his term. We were one of the best states in the country uh, as far as education goes wow. uh, at the time. Uh, he also uh, is going to oversee prison reform. Um, he almost actually, uh, by his third term, he almost abolished the death penalty in the state of Tennessee. It failed by one vote in the legislature. And he really pushed that because at the time he noticed something that bothered him. Every death row inmate, there were five, were all black, all from Memphis, all arrested by the same sheriff, and all convicted by the same judge. Oh, wow. Is there something fishy there? If, yeah. 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 Uh, he looked in the cases, and he, he thought, this isn't right. I can't prove they didn't do the crime, but I can really prove they didn't get a fair deal. Right. Um, he ended up commuting all their sentences. All the death sentences were turned to life in prison. He went to them and said, I can't prove you didn't do the crime, but I can prove you didn't get a fair trial, and uh, I'm commuting all your death sentences to life. I cannot save your soul, but I can save your life here. Wow. Uh, and he did that. Um, but for American history, the big thing he really did that we talk a lot about at the museum uh, is Governor Frank Clement was the first Southern governor in all of American history to veto a segregation bill. He was the first one to do it. Uh, he integrated the first high school in the entirety of the South, not just Tennessee, the South. Clinton High in Anderson County, Tennessee, East Tennessee, was the first to do it. Uh, And Clement was the only Southern governor during the Civil Rights Movement to really support the movement. Now, that would contribute to the loss of the Senate in 1966. Frank Clement ran for Senate, and he was the first uh, Democrat since the Civil War to lose a Senate race in the state of Tennessee. But I always say, if you're going to lose, go big. Uh, He (laughs) lost to Howard Baker. That's when Howard Baker became a senator. He would go on to be Senate Majority Leader and uh, Chief of Staff under Ronald Reagan. Uh, But Clement... In his concession speech, one of the things he said that always stuck with me is um, he preferred to focus on the next generation and not his next election. If he could leave office, um, if he could leave office leaving the state better, he, he would be happy to do it if it meant Tennessee was going to be better off. Uh, and, and all things considered, it was. Yeah, I kind of um, wish uh, some politicians were that way now. Huh? I wish most of them were yeah. that way. Not some. <laughs> I wish all of them were that yeah, way now. Um, but he... he 
1969 is a uh, November 4th to be exact next week um, is kind of a bittersweet day for us at the museum. November 4th, 1952, Frank Clement won his first term as governor of the state of Tennessee. Proud of that. We love that. Right. Um, 17 years later, however, November 4th, 1969, uh, Frank Clement was driving home from Nashville and his car swerved into the opposite lane. Uh, he had another vehicle head on and was killed wow. instantly. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's the day he won his first term and the day he passed away 17 years apart. He was only 49 years old at the time of wow. his death. Everything he did for the state of Tennessee was prior to his 50th birthday. Wow. That's a lot of an accomplishment. It really is. He could have been president of the United States. Who right. knows? Right, right. So now he had, how many kids did they have? He had three. Okay. Uh, Bob Clement was the oldest, uh, who was a uh, eight-term United States congressman. Um President of Cumberland University, he did a lot himself. Uh, and then there was Frank Clement Jr., who was currently serving on the Tennessee State Court of Appeals. He's a great judge. And then uh, James Gary Clement. Now, uh, Gary Clement passed away in the 1990s, so he's no longer around. Now, was Bob, was he, was his district part of Dixon or not? Uh, so he, he left office in 2003, so J- John Cooper took his seat. Gotcha. Um, so at the, because, you know, congressional districts change. So, so it was... Which we're coming up on that. Which we're coming on that now again. Yeah. Uh, so part of it, yes, but like not, not what John Cooper has. Right. Not so much a Dixon as as it is now. Okay. A uh, couple of questions. Then I want to move on. So the train that came through Dixon stopped right there. I guess in front of the hotel. Right. They stopped at the passenger depot. Was directly across the street from the hotel. The w- one that's still there. That's the one that's still there. Was the old passenger depot. CSX owns it today. Right. I know. I wish. I wish we. There could something be done to that. Uh, that'd know? be great. Now, they do operate out of it, so they, they it's still yeah. a working depot. Right. Uh, just not passenger trains anymore. Right, right. So I'm sure it's just storage or whatever. Oh, yeah, they have offices in there, too. Oh, I they know do? That. I know that, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so the other thing is, all right, because we've got a few minutes left, yeah. I want to talk about uh, the the play that, that y'all just had. Yeah, Tracks to Murder. Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, so... Um, it was not so much of a play as it was an interactive murder mystery. Right. Uh, we wanted to do something for Halloween, and we couldn't really figure out exactly how we really wanted to do it. Uh, haunted house, you know, or a museum, do we really want right. that? All right. these different things, and that's either really good or really bad. And right. <laughs> if we're charging people to see it, we don't want it to be bad. Uh, so Jasmine Brand, who is an employee at the, the Clement Railroad Hotel Museum, brilliant writer, brilliant person, came to me and said, I've got this idea for a murder mystery. And I said, the only th- I'm going to put some parameters on it. Don't make it cheesy, and I don't want it to be dinner theater where you flip the light out, someone screams, yeah. and they turn it on, and yeah. someone's laying on the ground, and bad <laughs> actors run in. I don't want that. Um, and she said, okay, um, just take a look at what I wrote, and it was almost like a giant game of Clue. Uh, there was a murder in the building, and you were the detective. That's what I loved about it, is you weren't watching right. a play. You were part of it. You had a role. You were the detective. You got to wander the museum. You got to look for clues. If you found a, a, a message, you got to decipher it. Learn Morse code and figure it out. What does it say? What does it mean? Look for other clues. Um, interrogate the suspects. We had actors that were kind of improving through certain things. Right. You got to figure out, ask them questions, any question you wanted. Are they, uh, they have a motive. Did they know the victim? What connection did they have to the victim? Did they have an alibi? Are they lying to you about any of it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of improv on the actors' part. It right? was. It yeah. was. And we had great actors. Uh, yeah. Corey Albert, president of the Chamber of Commerce. Angela Moore, uh, a realtor here in Dixon. Uh, Angela Redden, the owner of Reading Rock Books. And uh, Jasmine Brand, uh, the writer. She was the town gossip, yeah. so she moved around and kind of kept things going. And right. Paul Bullington, another, I think he works, I don't think he's a realtor, but he works in realty. Uh, he was the detective who 
uh, kind of facilitated a lot of this stuff. So it was a great night. It was very popular. We had a good young crowd, a lot of great energy. People loved it. Uh, it was so popular, we're going to have to add more dates yes, uh, coming yes. up. We're looking at another time in the spring, and it's a whole different storyline with different everything. So. Now, was it what era was it? 1920. Okay, so uh, didn't because I, I was reading where you encouraged people to dress up in that yeah, era. We had a costume contest. Uh, if you dressed up, you could be part of that. It was not a requirement. If you didn't right. feel comfortable or didn't want to dress up, we didn't make you. Uh, for for attendance, but yeah, we had a costume contest. So, uh, a lot of people dressed up in twenties era clothing. Uh, some people came as you know Dracula, so <laughs> that was also fun. Um, but no, it was it was a lot of fun, and 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 everything I've heard around town, it was very popular, and people yeah. seemed to like it. Yeah, because you sold out, right? We sold out both nights. Yeah. Okay. So you plan on doing that again? You think? Oh, absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Good. All right. So what else at the at the museum? Do you do we need to know about? So we are also the Dixon County Museum. We're not just a museum to Governor Clement. We we talk a lot about them because we're proud of them here. But we are a museum to Dixon County. So we talk about Burns and Sladen and Van Leer and all the other uh, great places in the county. We talk about Promise Land and the iron industry and uh, what a railroad hotel was and how Dixon used to be um, back in the back in the day. Um, but we also have a lot of great events coming up. We have changing exhibits. On November 4th, we're opening a new one. This is also the Chamber of Commerce's centennial year. They've been around for 100 years, 20, uh, 2021. Yeah. So November 4th, we're opening a new exhibit, uh, celebrating them and talking about what the Chamber of Commerce does because we have one in every county, but not a lot of people really know what they do. I know, yeah. Um, so, But they're very important to the growth and success of a county. So we're going to talk all about that. On November 9th, the War Memorial, we have... Uh, the FBI coming. Two of the top agents of the state are coming to talk about cybersecurity and how you can protect yourself in a ever-changing, modernizing world. And then they're coming to the museum afterwards. So at one thirty, if you can't make it to the lunch and learn at the chamber, uh, you can come for what we're trying to do, a media roundtable. Get the cool. newspapers out, and you're invited to that too. Yeah. Bring some recording equipment, talk to them. Uh, get as many people down to the museum afterwards. You can tour the museum and, and talk to the FBI agents more personally cool. there. And then on November 16th, this is the date I want everyone to put down the All most, right. November 16th, that is our annual legacy event. It is our largest fundraiser of the year. We're hoping to hit $100,000, and we're close. We are on our way. We just need your help pushing us over the finish line there. Um, but we ask for contributions. If you, you contribute whatever you can within your means. If it's pocket change, I'm happy to take it. Right. Uh, if it's thousands of dollars, I'm happy to yeah. take it. Um, <laughs> But we're hosting an event November 16th to, uh, we also use it not just as a fundraiser, but a way to honor individuals that have made contributions to our state, our community, and our nation. And this year we're honoring with the, the Legacy Award. You know, last year we gave it to Craig Morgan and Jeannie Seeley and Lamar Alexander. Uh, this year we're giving it to Dr. Joe Johnson, a former president of the University of Tennessee, and Serena Gilbert, Dixon County resident and former director of the Promised Land community cool. here in, in Dixon County. Two amazing honorees that have dedicated their life to service of this state and, 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 and country. And we're very proud to give them. So come out November 16th, 6 o'clock. Uh, 6 to 8 is the, the party we're throwing at uh, the museum and Holland Park. And okay. um, help us honor these two individuals. Uh, so is that primarily how you uh, uh, support yourselves over there? Is just through donations? So we are a 501c3, but we are also a state-owned museum. Okay. So I don't work for the state, but I work for the foundation that operates the museum. The state of Tennessee, the county of the Dixon County, and then the city of Dixon provide us with uh, funds. Um Throughout the year, right? Uh, but of course, everything we have go going on, we are always needing more to, oh, to sure. be able to facilitate yeah. and outreach and do everything great. We are so appreciative of Dixon County, uh, you know, Mayor Bob Rao, we love him, and then Don Weiss, we love him, and the right. city of Dixon, and then uh, our state legislature, uh, you know, Michael Curcio, our representative, and Mary Littleton, they make sure we get we get uh, taken care of every year as a state site. But we 
do rely on the kindness and generosity of others. We, we write grants and we solicit donations throughout the year, and our legacy is our largest um, fundraiser, and that's what keeps us going f- throughout the year. We would not be able to do what we do um, without it. Um, but we also have our endowment, and, and this year we're asking people, hey, you know, you can give the legacy, or you can give the legacy and the endowment, or you can give to the endowment, right. um, because this is, this at the end of the day, our museum is the history of Dixon County. Uh, it's the history of the t- state of Tennessee, too. We're a state site. Right. Not just Dixon County, but the state of Tennessee. And this is our history. We're asking you to own it. And unfortunately, sometimes owning something means buying something. Right. <laughs> uh, but buy into your history. Buy Because if we lose it, where do we go from there? Right. So on, an, uh, on a typical day, somebody can just come to the museum? Oh, yeah. Tuesday through Saturday, we're open. Okay. Uh, 9 to 5, Tuesday through Friday, 9 to 4 on Saturday. We're closed on Sunday and Monday. Um, we do charge admission to see the site, but the most anyone pays is $6. So that's, that's very reasonable. We're also a venue rental space. You can hold a birthday party there. You can hold okay. a, a wedding there. We've had weddings. We've had funerals uh, at the museum, and we're one of the most competitive uh, rental spaces. Is it is it still set up like kind of like a hotel where you have the rooms up there? So the rooms, it, the rooms were all upstairs, and they are um, the individual exhibit spaces today. Gotcha. Um, the building is set up so when you walk in, you see it and understand, hey, this used to be a hotel. Gotcha. Um, but our drummer's room, which was a marketing gimmick to get salesmen in as a place they could display their wares is our gift shop. The telegraph office is my office. So it's communication still, right. uh, the dining room is still a dining room and we, you can rent that out $170 for four hours. Hey, that's a good rate. No doubt. Um, so, I mean, we get all kinds of things throughout. We are a space. We wanted to be multi-purpose when, when they founded the museum. Um, not just a space for history, but if you're not interested in history, we can still offer you something, whether it's one of the programs and events we have. We have uh, Skip, Nipper, Skip Nipper came and did uh, a talk on the history of baseball in the state of Tennessee when we had the Mike Schacht exhibit, a baseball artist. Uh, we had, um, you know, we, we had uh, book talks, authors coming into town talking about the book they're writing. Uh, we have the murder mystery event, yeah. things like that. So we have something for everyone uh, cool. in the area. Cool. Which is, it's awesome that we have something like this in this town. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That people can visit and see the history of Dixon. Uh, and I'll say, I, I was blown away, because I'm, I'm from Murray County, as we talked about. Right. Uh, which is close to Dixon County. Right. But I was blown away the first time I came to the museum. I was like, I didn't really know this was here, but everyone should. And I have fallen in love with Dixon County. I could not imagine myself living anywhere else, doing anything else than what I'm doing right now. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we have a, we have a great community. We and do. Um, you know, we have so much going on, and especially now, you know, just a lot of stuff downtown going on, and oh, yeah. it's just really becoming a great place. And to I'll be. tell you, I, I, usually people get mad going to the DMV. Yeah, but I, I was one of my proudest days when I got to stand there and change my residence from oh, okay. from, from from Columbia to yeah to Dixon. Cool, cool. Was there anything else you want to say? I know we encourage people to come to the sixteenth to the sixteenth, and that's free to attend. We encourage donations. Okay. We appreciate donations, but it's not required. Okay. It's not required. And it, since you're a 503, then everything you give is tax deductible. Everyone, everything you give is tax deductible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. cool. Um, anything else? Uh, no, thank you for having me. Hey, we really appreciate you coming by today. I know you're busy. I, you said Bob's over there doing, Bob Clement's over there now doing oh, yeah, some yeah. stuff. Congressman and, uh, Clement was down yeah. at, the, at the museum today. He always, he cares a lot about the place. His dad was born there so it means a lot to him sure and uh, anytime he's got someone in town he brings them by to show it off right right well great awesome again we appreciate you coming i know we i I wanted to talk a lot to you about a lot more stuff and maybe we can schedule another time absolutely happy to talk some history and happy to different things going on in tennessee but we appreciate you tuning in today uh next week we got james savage on who is the campus pastor at cross point 
And the week after that, we're gonna have a VA uh, kind of day, and we're gonna have some veterans coming in and talking about some of their uh, the, the things that they did. And so that's gonna be a really great show. It's on Veterans Day. That's and great. I think the Sunday before is the Veterans Day Parade. So everybody kind of watch for that. But thank you again for watching, and uh, we will see you next week. Thank you for watching. We know that you enjoyed today's show. Join us each Friday on your lunch break at 12 p.m. for new insights into local events, politics, and all things Dixon County. Remember to like us on Facebook and subscribe on YouTube at The Jeff Eby Show or visit our website, thejeffebyshow.com.